0: This hearing will come to order. Uh, let me thank uh, you all, all the witnesses, uh, to the 11th and final hearing for the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific International Cybersecurity Policy in the 115th Congress, uh, I first want to again thank Senator Markey for being a, an incredible partner, absolutely incredible partner on this subcommittee. You couldn't have asked for anybody better uh, to work with. The East Asia Pacific Subcommittee has held the most hearings of any uh, Foreign Relations Committee uh, subcommittee in the 115th Congress. Uh, it's quite an achievement for the American people who sent us here to contact, uh, conduct, excuse me, vigorous oversight over our nation's foreign policy. And I want to thank Senator Markey for the work that we have done together uh, throughout uh, the Indo-Pacific region. In conjunction with these hearings, we authorized the uh, Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA, the landmark legislation that will strengthen our alliances and deter our adversaries in the Indo-Pacific uh, for generations to come. To inform this legislation, we conducted five hearings examining a range of national security, economic, and rule of law uh, challenges in the Indo-Pacific. We concluded with a hearing on May 15, 2018 Featuring State Department and Department of Defense officials on June twenty first, two thousand eighteen, Secretary Pompeo and Secretary Mattis formally endorsed, formally endorsed, formally excuse me, endorsed ARIA in a letter to this committee. ARIA passed this committee unanimously on September 26, two thousand eighteen, and I'm hopeful that it will be signed into law before the end of the year. In this subcommittee, we also held two hearings on North Korea, examining the shift from strategic patience policy of the last administration to the maximum pressure and engagement policy of this one. We agreed that uh, clearly much more work needs to be done uh, to achieve complete, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization of the North Korean regime, as required by U.S. law. We also held an important hearing on cybersecurity policy, examining state-sponsored threats in cyberspace as a vital national security concern for the United States that needs to be seriously and immediately addressed. This hearing today will be the final hearing in a three-part series of hearings titled The China Challenge that examines how the United States should respond to the challenge of a China that seeks to upend and supplant the U.S.-led liberal world order. Our first two hearings focused on security and economic aspects of China's authoritarian rise. Today's hearing will focus on democracy, human rights, and the rule of law, values that have been fundamental to the conduct of U.S. foreign policy for generations. As these values relate to China, the Trump administration has been clear on the scope of the problem and gravity of the challenge before us. According to the National Security Strategy, for decades, U.S. policy was rooted in the belief that support for China's rise and for its integration into the post-war international order would liberalize China. Contrary to our hopes, the report stated, China expanded its power at the expense of the sovereignty of others. According to the National Defense Strategy, the central challenge to U.S. prosperity and security is the reemergence of long-term strategic competition by what National Security Strategy classifies as revisionist powers. It is increasingly clear that China and Russia want to shape a world consistent with their authoritarian model, gaining veto authority over other nations' economic, diplomatic, and security decisions. The so-called authoritarian closing under President Xi Jinping has resulted in an unprecedented and intensifying crackdown on civil society, ethnic minorities, and religious freedom in China. The news of mass concentration camps for Uyghur Muslims in the Xinjiang Autonomous Province has shocked the conscience and necessitates a serious response from the United States and the international community. The crackdowns in the Tibet Autonomous Region is intensifying. While Beijing continues to refuse negotiations with the Central Tibetan Administration, human rights defenders are routinely jailed, tortured, and otherwise deprived of liberty. A genuine freedom of speech and assembly are non existent. Corruption and abuse of power are rampant. The judicial system is a tool of the state and the party and not an impartial arbiter of legal disputes. So, today, we have three distinguished administration witnesses to shed light on how the United States should approach democracy, human rights, and the rule of law as they relate to strategic competition with China, and how the United States should advance these values on Chinese soil.
1: With that, I'll turn it over to Senator Markey for his opening comments. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. And, uh, and again, thank you for this incredible set of hearings which we have had uh, in this subcommittee over the past two years. Just absolutely uh, fantastic, and I want to compliment you uh, for that. And uh, in this hearing is just a continuation of that, the looking at uh, of, uh, Chinese policies and uh, influences. Uh, these challenges are not insurmountable, but they do require our thoughtful study and close attention. Around the world, all countries, including the United States, rely on the rules-based international order to underpin security and prosperity, to help provide a level playing field, to provide the maximum opportunity for the greatest number of people and to defend and protect certain fundamental rights. So it is of the utmost importance that we do everything in our power to ensure that this system remains. Our first hearing focused on economic policies of the Chinese government effort that ran counter to these tenets. The subsequent hearing explored China's military modernization and expansion and its implications for the security interests of America and our allies, and the fundamental peace and stability of the Indo-Pacific. Today's hearing seeks to capture developments in Chinese domestic policy that could have broad implications for the way people are treated around the world. After all, what has made American foreign policy strong and effective is not just our economic and military strength, but our commitment to certain values. The world has looked up to the United States, Uh, It watched as our democratic experiment developed, one that prioritized the promotion of basic individual freedoms and liberties. But we must make clear that this wasn't just an experiment. That American democracy isn't obsolete and that U.S. leadership on human rights isn't temporary. While American democracy has been messy at times, it has also been the envy of the international community. It is what has allowed us to be a moral leader in the eyes of the world. As China rises, it grows ever more influential around the world, and elements of China's policies have challenged long-established concepts of rights and freedoms. I, like many others, at one point believed that China's entry into the international community would lead to increased political openings, the promotion of freedom of expression and greater commitment to human rights. Unfortunately, we are seeing just the opposite trend. We are seeing the Chinese government's authoritarian uh, attitudes influence five key areas. First, it seeks to politically curb dissent through censorship of all types of freedom of expression, including online. This approach is drawing American companies such as Google, into this way of thinking, and along the way, compromising data privacy provisions on their online uh, platforms uh, to uh, exchange for greater market access for American companies. Second, it is employing extrajudicial tactics to intimidate citizens, including those from the United States, along with Senators Cardin and Rubio, uh, Senator uh, Gardner, Uh, We're concerned uh, that this administration uh, is uh, is, uh, not raising uh, these issues with the Chinese government, uh, its use of the exit ban policies to prevent innocent Americans from leaving China, which violate international conventions and bilateral agreements. We have to do more. Third, we are seeing the continued ethnic and religious repression of minority communities in China. Uh, The Chinese government's tactics to repress Tibetan Buddhists is being replicated in Xinjiang. Uh, There are reports that as many as one million Muslim Uyghurs have been forced to take part, quote, in re-education camps where they must renounce their religious and ethnic identity. This policy is an abomination and defies all forms of basic human rights principles. This sadly falls into a pattern of state behavior as the government's policies to target Christians and members of other faiths is well known. Fourth, the Chinese government is now exhibiting the bold behavior of targeting activists and dissidents overseas. In one case, Chinese authorities have threatened the family, members of Radio Free Asia's, Uyghur news service journalists, uh, and should, should they continue to report on the activities inside of China. And finally, China's government has protected other governments accused of significant human rights violations. China is working through the United Nations Security Council to protect the government in Burma from international condemnation for its brutal assault on the Rohingya. It is weakening the international efforts to pressure the Han Sen regime in Cambodia by offering financial loans. It is giving lucrative lines of credit to Venezuela as the world tries to isolate President Maduro. And it is noticeably silent on President Duterte's drug war in the Philippines as it strengthens the economic and security partnership with Manila. Such policies undermine established human rights standards internationally. And they challenge the individual freedoms and liberties the majority of the world holds dear. So it is imperative That we confront this challenge. We must engage with our Chinese counterparts, head on about our concerns, and work with our allies and partners to establish a collective front against this malign behavior. And we have to do it at the highest levels, starting with the President, because we cannot credibly defend human rights without the backing of the office of the President. And there are many unanswered questions about how this administration is dealing with China's authoritarian behavior. How effective are we in calling out Chinese behavior, especially when we pull out of institutions like the Human Rights Council, which can serve as an effective venue to apply pressure? How are we raising our concerns with the Chinese government? And what is our president saying to President Xi about human rights? Did this come up at the G20? And if so, how did the conversation go? If not, why not? We don't know. We need to shed light on these questions. If we want to help stem the tide towards authoritarian challenges to democracy, human rights, and the rule of law, we must ensure our diplomatic efforts are comprehensive and effective. Our moral leadership of the planet depends upon it. So I thank you, Mr. Chairman, once again, and I thank our this very distinguished panel for being here today, and I yield back.
0: Thank you, Senator Markey, and I'm gonna introduce all three witnesses and then we'll begin with you, uh, Mr. Busby. Um, our first witness is Scott Busby, who serves as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State at the Bureau of the Human Rights, Democracy and Labor. Previously, he served as Director for Human Rights on the National Security Council in the White House from 2009 to 2011, where he managed a wide range of human rights and refugee issues. Welcome to the committee and thank you for your service. Uh, Our second witness is Laura Stone, who serves as Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of State at the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Previously, she served as the Director of the Office of Chinese and Mongolian Affairs, Director of the Economic Policy Office in EAP, and Economic Counselor in Hanoi, Vietnam. Thank you for being here. Our third witness is Gloria Steele, who serves as Acting Assistant Administrator at the Bureau for Asia of the United States Agency for International Development, or USAID. A career member of the U.S. Senior Executive Service. She was USAID, USAID Mission Director for the Philippines and the Pacific Islands prior to her appointment. Look forward to your testimony. Uh, Secretary Busby, please begin.
2: Thank you, Mr. Chairman uh, and Ranking Member Markey and members of the subcommittee. We very much appreciate your attention to the human rights situation in China and the invitation to appear before you today. Defending universal rights and fundamental freedoms has been and will continue to be an essential element of American foreign policy. Governments that respect human rights remain the best vehicle for promoting prosperity, happiness, and peace. Vice President Pence aptly summed up the current human rights situation in China in his recent speech at the Hudson Institute, where he said, quote, for a time, Beijing inched, inched toward greater liberty and respect for human rights. But in recent years, China has taken a sharp U-turn toward control and oppression of its own people. I think you both uh, fully described that situation in your own remarks this morning. As both of you mentioned, some of the most widespread and worst human rights abuses taking place in China right now are occurring in the Xinjiang region. The U.S. government assesses that since April 2017, Chinese authorities have indefinitely detained at least 800,000 and possibly more than 2 million Uyghurs, ethnic Kazakhs, and members of other Muslim minorities in internment camps. Reports suggest that most of those detained are not being charged with crimes and their families have little to no information about their whereabouts. At first, China denied the existence of such camps, but as public reports have emerged, Chinese authorities now assert that they are, quote, vocational education centers," senator, close quote, <clears> which glosses over the fact that many renowned Uyghur intellectuals and retired professionals are also detained in these camps. Former detainees who have reached safety have spoken of relentless indoctrination and harsh conditions. For example, praying and other religious practices are forbidden. The apparent goal is to force detainees to renounce Islam and embrace the Chinese Communist Party. The recent testimony of Mihirgal Tursin is a chilling and heart-wrenching account of just how badly the Chinese government is mistreating many of the people who have been detained in the Xinjiang region. Life outside the internment camps is not much better. Neighborhoods have entry and exit checkpoints manned by armed police. Families have been forced to accept Chinese officials into their homes or extended homestays. Thousands of mosques have been shuttered or destroyed. Some have even been converted into communist propaganda centers. Unfortunately, fleeing China is not enough to escape the long arm of the Chinese government. China has routinely pressured other countries to return Uyghurs, ethnic Kazakhs, and members of other Muslim minority groups, which has often proven successful. Even when such individuals reach safety, China continues to harass and intimidate them. China's repression of minority groups does not end in Xinjiang. Its policies have spread hundreds of miles away, for instance, to we Muslim communities. Tibetans also face continued repression and pervasive surveillance. Indeed, the Tibetan Autonomous Region was the testing ground for many of the techniques now used in Xinjiang. Chinese authorities also continue to restrict the freedom of religion of Christian communities and others. Protestant house churches are being shut down, and even officially registered churches are under increased government scrutiny. In September, the Holy See in China signed a two-year provisional agreement on the selection of bishops in China, which raises additional religious freedom concerns. Falun Gong members and members of the Church of Almighty God also reportedly continue to face detention, forced labor, and torture. As both of you noted, the government also continues to abuse lawyers, human rights defenders, and other activists. We are particularly concerned about the cases of Wang Xuanzang, Jian Tianyang, and Wang Qi, who have been imprisoned and abused for their efforts to fight for the rights of others and to document abuses. Any organizing to raise collective concerns or advocate for social change, it seems, including the efforts of women's, LGBTI, labor and migrants' rights groups, runs the risk of intimidation and harassment. Journalists also continue to have their practices restricted and rights abused. As members of this committee have previously noted, China's system of repression is exacerbated by the government's increasing technological sophistication. In sum, we see a concerted effort to use both new, advanced technology and old-fashioned repression to control all aspects of Chinese society. Despite these developments, the United States continues to advocate for human rights in China. While Laura will speak to how we seek to advance human rights in the bilateral relationship, my bureau, DRL, is implementing $10 million of FY 2018 uh, economic support funds to support human rights in China, just as we have have done for the past several years. Nevertheless, such programs are increasingly challenged by the difficult operating environment in China, including the new and highly restrictive foreign NGO management law. We are also working with our allies and using multilateral fora to encourage China to improve its human rights situation, as demonstrated through our recent engagement in China's Universal Periodic Review. And we, along with the U.S. Agency for Global Media, continue to push back against China's closed internet by, among other things, funding programs that support anti-censorship technologies uh, and promote digital safety. We welcome the spotlight that this hearing shines on the human rights situation in China, and we will continue to work closely with this subcommittee to support the efforts of those in China who are seeking to stand up for their rights. Thank you.
3: Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member Markey, distinguished members of the subcommittee, I truly appreciate the invitation to appear before you today on this important issue. Um, The United States wants a constructive, results-oriented relationship with China, grounded in the principles of fairness, reciprocity, and respect. China's protection of human rights and fundamental freedoms is essential to our ability to achieve this vision and to realize a sustainable U.S.-China relationship. Today, however, China is clearly doubling down on repressive domestic controls in stark contrast to the universal values that the United States and its partners have championed for many decades. In recent years, we have witnessed a regression in terms of China's respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms, including religious freedom, the rule of law, and civil society. While my colleague Das Busby can speak more to to many of these items in more detail today, and our written statements highlight them as well, Today, I will share with you some of the actions the State Department is taking to reinforce our support for human rights and fundamental freedoms in China in the face of these challenges. In Xinjiang, we're particularly alarmed by reports of China's mass detention of Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other members of Muslim minority groups in so-called camps. We consistently urge China to reverse counterproductive policies that conflate terrorism with the peaceful expression of religious beliefs or political views. I've received reports that U.S lawful permanent residents, family members of U.S. citizens, and individuals who participated in State Department exchange programs have been detained in camps. We regularly raise these cases with Chinese authorities and insist that China provide information on the locations and medical conditions of those detained, and more importantly, immediately release them. Secretary Pompeo, with Secretary Mattis, highlighted these very issues just last month in Washington at the Diplomatic and Security Dialogue press event. The Vice President spoke about this issue publicly in early October, and UN Ambassador Haley did the same in speaking about the security challenges that China's campaign in Xinjiang poses to the international community. The State Department is leading interagency efforts within the administration to review and develop a U.S. whole-of-government strategy to address the campaign of repression in Xinjiang. Elements of the strategy could include utilizing a number of tools to promote accountability by Chinese officials for human rights abuses preventing China's use of U.S. goods and services to perpetuate its egregious activities in Xinjiang, and strengthening our diplomatic and public policy efforts throughout the world to attract like-minded partners. Department officials continue to meet with members of the Uyghur diaspora and coordinate with U.S. law enforcement agencies to prevent the harassment of Uyghurs in the United States. The department has conducted outreach to U.S. and Chinese companies with business in Xinjiang to draw attention to the risks of their exposure to Chinese abuses and to underscore the U.S. commitment to avoid complicity. U.S. embassies around the world are providing assistance to survivors of Xinjiang's camps. We've engaged dozens of foreign governments to successfully prevent the refoulement to China, of Uyghurs, and other members of Muslim minority groups whose lives or freedom would be threatened. If we are to fundamentally change China's behavior in Xinjiang, the international community must act together. Beyond Xinjiang, the Department of State officials regularly attend the trials and sentencing of Chinese human rights lawyers and activists, and I and others have met with the wives and family members of those who have been detained. We press for the release, both publicly and privately, of all political prisoners. And many of their names appear in my written testimony. Though we were unsuccessful in the, uh, our intensive efforts to secure the freedom of Leo Xiaobo, persistent public and private advocacy secured the long-sought release of his widow, Leo Xia, in July this year. Ambassador Bransted has been especially active in engaging China's leadership on cases such as these. When we speak up, we try to do so in concert with allies and partners throughout the world that are similarly concerned. Again, though, speaking out publicly is just one tool we have. A Chinese security official was among the first ever tranche of foreign officials sanctioned using Executive Order 13818, which builds on the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act for his role in the death of an activist held in in government custody. America's critical role in protecting and promoting human rights and fundamental freedoms in China is in many ways more important today as China attempts to take a global leadership role. And there is more the United States can do. We look forward to working closely with this subcommittee to support the efforts of the Chinese people to realize their human rights and fundamental freedoms and to promote accountability for those who seek to violate or abuse those rights and freedoms. Thank you for the invitation to testify today on these very important issues. And of course, I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have.
0: Thank you very much for your testimony. Ms. Steele, please proceed.
4: Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member Markey, Mr. Kane. Thank you very much for this opportunity to talk about uh, democracy, human rights, and rule of law in China. In support of America's foreign policy, the U.S. Agency for International Development leads the U.S. government's international development and disaster assistance. Our work saves lives and helps countries to become more self-reliant and stronger partners to America. For the purposes of today's hearing, I will first highlight USAID's work with the Tibetans and then provide a brief overview of our support to strengthen democracy and respect for human rights and rule of law in Asia. Thanks to a strong bipartisan support in Congress, USAID partners with Tibetans to help them protect and preserve their threatened way of life. Within China, we support the preservation of Tibetan culture, the development of sustainable livelihoods, and assistance with environmental conservation. To date, USAID has supported the preservation of nearly 7 million Tibetan cultural heritage items and in in part due to our environmental conservation support, Tibetan communities are empowered to lead the management of their natural resources from rangelands to rivers. In India and Nepal, USAID helps Tibetan communities strengthen their self-reliance and resilience. This includes strengthening their health and education systems. For example, our work in training teachers in modern methods has benefited more than 21,000 students at 75 Tibetan schools in India and Nepal. We're helping Tibetans maintain the vitality of their communities and institutions while sustaining their unique identity and culture. We have bolstered the public service leadership of more than 330 Central Tibetan administration staff. And in support of sustainable livelihoods, USAID has launched a pilot program to help garment vendors sustain or grow their businesses through small, low-interest loans. In fiscal year 2017, the program benefited over 800 micro-enterprises and boasted of a 100% on-time repayment rate. Next, I will highlight our democracy, human rights, and rule of law work in Asia. Over the last five years, democratic institutions across Asia have been significantly tested. Some foreign influences have overtly and covertly co-opted political leaders and exploited institutional weaknesses. This has given rise to increased corruption, opaque commercial deals, and subversions of national sovereignty. We are seeing competing development models that can lead to unsustainable debt, or limit economic, political, and social freedoms. These unfortunate developments undermine the long-term stability of our partner countries. In contrast, the US government offers an alternative development approach that fosters strategic partnership and self-reliance, not long-term dependence. In support of the Indo-Pacific Strategy USAID promotes democratic, citizen-centered governance that is representative of the will and interests of the people, and is infused with democratic principles of participation, inclusion, transparency, and accountability. We promote adherence to international rules and standards, and we support legal and institutional respect for human rights, the protection of which is a cornerstone of strong democratic governance. We have achieved some notable progress. However, we recognize that we still have a lot of way to go and must remain steadfast in our engagement. Before closing, I'd like to mention our work about concerning improving governance in the natural resource sector. The natural resources upon which many of our partner countries defend for their long-term economic growth are increasingly threatened by irresponsible extraction, predatory behavior, and poor governance. That is why USAID prioritizes improving the management of natural resources across Asia. We promote transparent government policies, regulations and transactions that foster adherence to internationally accepted standards, including environmental safeguards that help to mitigate the entry of predatory players. Of particular note is a new three-year program that we are launching called Mekong Safeguards that will support responsible infrastructure development in lower Mekong region. There is no doubt that China is increasingly exerting its influence across the region. This presents challenges to our partner countries' sustainable development and can threaten country sovereignty. The strategic partnership we offer provides a clear alternative development choice, one that invests in increasing country self-reliance and sustainable prosperity and help countries to make informed decisions about their own futures. Thank you and I look forward to your counsel and questions.
0: Thank you for your testimony. I think uh, the testimony from the three of you has presented one of the most uh, uh, damning views of China's rise uh, the committee has heard. And I want to go through some of uh, Mr. Secretary Busby's statement again because I think it's important to, in this context to again reiterate what was said here. We're talking about mass detention uh, of Uyghurs, ethnics, Kazakhs. Surveillance is intrusive and omnipresent. Harassment of political dissidents, not just in China, but by Chinese on foreign soil. Detaining journalist family members who remain in China to harass uh, those uh, abroad. Coercing members of Chinese Muslim minority groups to return from overseas. Reports that suggest that most uh, people detained are not charged with crimes. Their families lack information about their whereabouts, their well-being, or for how long they will be held. Some are being merely detained because they uh, traveled abroad or because they have family abroad. There appears to be no way to contest such detentions. Failure to quickly learn the lessons taught in these uh, camps leads to beatings and food deprivation in your testimony. Reports of the use of stress positions, cold cells, and sleep deprivation in the camps. Reports of torture or cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment, including sexual abuse. One common goal in the reports from former detainees seems to be forcing detainees to renounce Islam and embrace the Chinese Communist Party, you said that. Reports that there's constant surveillance of detainees to ensure they do not pray even in their own beds in the middle of the night. Forced to eat pork and drink alcohol. Reportedly being forced, forcibly to take medica- to, 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 to medicate with unknown substances. Civil society groups say most Uyghurs in voluntary return to China face arbitrary imprisonment, disappearance, torture, or summary execution. One case you cite in your testimony: authorities in China use dynamite to demolish a house church in Shangxi province. They're requiring the removal of crosses, in some cases, the hanging of pictures of Xi Jinping and Mao Zedong inside the church, and the installation of surveillance equipment inside the church. Reports of officials destroying or limiting the access to religious materials, like the allegations that Chinese authorities have burned the Bibles and Korans. We are talking about one of the most significant trade partners this country and many countries around the globe have, with over a billion people. We're not talking about some tin-pot dictatorship. We're talking about a country that people look to more and more for leadership around the globe. What you have described are damning evidence of horrendous human rights violations. Could you please explain, uh, Secretary Busby, some of the steps this administration has taken uh, to hold people accountable for these actions and what we are doing at the United Nations and other places to perhaps uh, provide inspection uh, inspectors access and pressure From these kinds of activities from continuing, to prevent these kinds of
2: activities. Thank you, uh, Chairman Gardner, for the question. Um, First of all, we've been trying to uh, raise public awareness about the situation. Um, At the first ever uh, religious freedom ministerial that Secretary Pompeo hosted in July, both he and Vice President called attention to uh, the abuses in Xinjiang province. And we circulated, among other attendees, a statement uh, on human rights abuses in China that talked about the abuses in Xinjiang province. Ever since then, we have been trying to continue to uh, spread the word about what's going on in Xinjiang province. Um, In the United Nations, we recently participated in the Universal Periodic Review, which is something that every country has to go through. Uh, and in our brief statement, had to be brief because of the number of folks who wanted to speak at this, uh, uh, at this event, uh, we called attention uh, to the human rights abuses in China, uh, in Xinjiang province in particular, and called for them to cease. As my colleague, Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary Stone mentioned, there's a very robust interagency process underway, led by the National Security Council, to look at specific, concrete steps we can take to respond to the horrific things happening in Xinjiang province and try to bring them uh, to a stop.
0: Stone, uh, have any sanctions been leveled against any uh, Chinese officials involved in these uh, suspected or confirmed events uh, actions? Uh, has any passport been suspended? Has any uh, official action been levied against uh, the Chinese government?
3: Thank you very much for the question, Chairman. Um, I obviously share the, at a personal level our concerns about the, what's going on in Xinjiang. I don't think anybody who is uh, working on these issues for a long time could could have any other position. Um, the uh, tools that, that Congress has given us, uh, we really do appreciate them. Uh, they are the kind of things that, that we can use. Um, it's a little frustrating, I understand. It's frustrating for us as well. The, the process sometimes is not as fast as we would like. Um, you know, that's actually a, a good feature of our system. I'm gonna
0: run out of time and I wanna give it to Senator oh, Markey, just, to, just quickly, so I apologize, so, oh, uh, has so, any action been taken?
3: Okay, so the, um, the, we are working through a process right now uh, in order to, um, to get through to the um, appropriate actions uh, using the tools that you've given us. And um, the process is, is moving along. We hope to move on uh, on those issues, uh, and we hope to, to take action as soon as the uh, the process has continued.
0: Well, I hope those processes uh, move quickly. I know uh, Treasury is involved in those decisions as well, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, encourage uh, action to be taken quickly. Yes. Senator Markey.
1: Um, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, I want to raise the issue of the uh, missing Chinese-based relatives of six Radio Free Asia, Uyghur reporters. Um, What is the administration doing about this? How are we raising that issue? Uh, It undermines, uh, obviously, the credibility of of that uh, whole mission, and it creates a chilling effect in terms of our ability to be able to deliver an honest message about what it is that we see happening in that region. So what are we doing to protect these relatives?
2: Well, first off, we have uh, raised the cases with the, the Chinese government, uh, so far to no avail. Our spokesperson, Heather Nauert, uh, met with the RFA journalists here uh, to hear about uh, the situation of their relatives. Uh, and at that meeting, she called out again the Chinese government uh, for undertaking these actions against uh, the relatives. So it's an issue we continue to track and we continue to press the Chinese government But thus far, to thus
1: far, we've been unsuccessful in receiving any change uh, in policy by the Chinese government, is that correct?
2: So far to my knowledge, we don't have any relatives who've, uh, who've been released as a consequence of these efforts.
1: What, al- what else could we do in this area in order to get the proper response?
3: Obviously, there's a lot we can do, and many of them are, as I referred to, tools that have been provided by Congress, which we're very appreciative of. Uh, I referred to in my testimony some of the actions that we are considering. Um, I can't prejudge exactly the process. Uh, obviously, we're a country. We really are a country um, ruled by law, and uh, so we're, we're going through that process. We want to make sure that these are actions that can stand up, uh, you know, in, under legislative scrutiny, judicial scrutiny. Um, and uh, um, we we'll continue to, to move forward on those actions. I mean, I think the, the real point on this, though, is that you know even if we don't have an immediate impact on what we're doing, I think that it's still important that we take these actions. I
1: agree with you, um, just more must be done.
3: Yes. Uh,
1: I wanna move on to uh, online censorship. Google, Apple, Facebook are reported to have aided the Chinese government internet censorship efforts as part of their efforts to access the Chinese market. Uh, For example, Google disables domain fronting capacity used to evade sensors and is working on a censored version of search engine Dragonfly to launch in China. Apple has removed more than 400 virtual private networks um, uh, while handing over uh, their China iCloud user data to the Chinese state-owned mobile operator. Has the State Department engaged the administration to monitor and discourage these corporate behaviors which go against the fundamental value of freedom of expression?
2: Uh, Thank you for the question, um, Senator. Yes, we have. Uh, Indeed, we recently met with senior officials from Google in the wake of the news story about the development of the Dragonfly uh, application uh, and expressed our strong concerns that any collaboration by them with the Chinese government to develop a censored version of their search search tool would be very problematic for us. Yeah,
1: I think that just must continue to uh, escalate in terms of the pressure that we're applying. We just can't separate ourselves and our corporations from the goals which we have uh, in China and other countries. And uh, Ms. Stone and Mr. Busby, there are some calls for Uyghurs to be given temporary protected uh, status to ensure Uyghurs are not sent back to China to face repression repression. Other European governments have halted extraditions of Uyghurs. Do you support that move?
2: I mean, that's one of many options that is being considered. Do you
1: support that move? We're not extraditing people back to a country which is repressing them.
2: um, We are generally uh, opposed to return of any Uyghurs back to China. And the issue of TPS itself, again, is one of the many options being considered.
1: Yeah, well, I I think it is the option which should be considered and implemented. We just can't, as a country, be sending people back to what we know is repression. And uh, what is our diplomatic strategy to engage Muslim majority countries to condemn Chinese behavior? It seems like there should be more of an outcry from the Muslim world. We haven't heard them. Uh, These are Muslims who are being uh, oppressed inside of China. What is the United States strategy to get more cooperation from Muslim com- uh, countries to speak up uh, for their co-religionists?
2: Senator, a very good uh, question point. I was recently in Malaysia and raised this very issue with the government there, uh, and we have been raising with other Muslim-majority countries again with a goal of establishing a like-minded.
1: Have we raised it with Saudi Arabia?
2: I don't. I can't speak to Saudi Arabia. Do you
1: know, Ms. Stone, if we have?
3: Um, We would be happy to get you a list of the countries that we've raised it with. Um, Yeah. I I know it's been the majority of Muslim-majority countries, so I assume so, but I'd have to check. Yeah,
1: there's a lot of Muslim uh, clout out there. We just don't see it at work here. Uh, I don't think China's going to respond unless they know that in the Muslim world, and from government to government, we should be telling Saudi Arabia and other countries we expect that as their policy. Um, Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
5: Senator Rubio. Thank you. This whole topic of China, I think, is so much more than just the balance of trade and among the, you know, President Jeek sort of certainly views himself as a historic and transformational figure, and one of their goals is to remake the global order more in their image and more advantageous to them, and many of the things that are being talked about here today are part of it. I mean, if you look at the record, the abuses that are well-documented against the Uyghur Muslims trying to strip the people of Tibet of their identity and their religion, the long-standing attacks on Falun Gong practitioners. Obviously, we, we know the stress that Christianity has faced Um, And then on the field of democracy, we've seen the erosion of it in Hong Kong, the disqualification of four pro-democracy lawmakers from the ballot, the jailing of three prominent pro-democracy student leaders. And then you see sort of what the global reaction has been to it, and there's reason to be concerned that this post-World War II, pro-democracy, pro-human rights, global norms are being eroded and reshaped, uh, and that China is using its geopolitical heft and its economic power uh, to push it in that direction, look at the Senator Markey just mentioned. The silence of the Muslim world in the face of the forced internment of uh, hundreds of thousands of Muslims in uh, Uyghur, Muslim Uyghurs. In the UN, for example, in April, security forces ejected a Uyghur ethnic, an ethnic Uyghur uh, representing a uh, accredited non-governmental organization. Uh, clearly, at the request of somebody, he was accredited. He was in uh, Greece, blocked the European Union from issuing a, a statement or a, a position uh, at the, at the uh, Human Rights Council. For the first time, I believe, ever a, a, a definitive statement, uh, delivering a statement, and, and uh, we can all surmise why. They own every port in Greece. They have incredible economic leverage on Greece. I mean, the list goes on. In 2017, the UN Security, uh, UN Secretary General uh, introduced President Xi at an event that was closed to civil society, by the way, and he made no reference of the human rights environment in China. Uh, The EU Council and Commission at a summit in Brussels on the 1st and 2nd of June publicly quote-unquote expressed concern about human rights abuses in China, but didn't call for the release of political prisoners, including their own citizens, citizens of the EU, or even the repeal of of abusive laws. This In June, this is all from uh, a report, I believe, from Human Rights Watch, but in in, in June, Italian police briefly detained and later released the same ethnic Uyghur uh, NGO representative uh, who had been invited to speak at the Italian Senate, and they briefly detained him, even though he had been invited to be there. Again, it's not clear whether uh, the Chinese requested it. On issue after issue, it appears to us, you can see around the world that even nations that long have been committed to democracy and, and human rights when it comes to China are either being quiet, looking the other way, or frankly are now leveraged to the point where they cannot speak out. And so that's why it's so important for the United States to be forceful about it because no one else can or wants to. And when others do want to, you're concerned when we don't join them. So as an example, earlier this month, there were 15 Western ambassadors in Beijing, spearheaded by Canada. They reportedly sent a letter to the Xinjiang's Communist Party chief, Chen Guanggo. He's seeking a meeting and expressing deep concern regarding the growing crackdown. No one thought that meeting was going to happen, per se. But I'm curious, Ms. Stone, why didn't the U.S. sign onto that letter? Do you know?
3: Um, so, we agree with you completely. Uh, the, thank you very much for the, the question and the um, clear statement of support for um, the, the U.S. speaking out strongly on the human rights conditions in China and also the, the conditions in, in Xinjiang. Um, the, uh, the specific letter, um, you know, sometimes uh, the, the countries uh, involved, they are like-minded partners Um, And we may or may not join on any kind of particular measure that's coming out of the the embassies in in Beijing. Um, But I do want to assure you that we are working consistently with those like-minded partners um, to do real action. And the thing is, we have many more tools, and we also have, um, a lot more spine sometimes to be able to actually take real action. And, and I, I
5: appreciate business. I'm running out of time. I just want to make the point that if we're here complaining on the one hand about how all these countries aren't doing enough, when they actually do something, we can't even sign on to a letter. I don't know if that decision was made here in D.C. as part of the broader relationship with China or made by the ambassador, but I think it was a, a big mistake. Um, in your written testimony, you mentioned the fact that Chinese security services are harassing Uyghurs abroad. We've heard firsthand from people who say this is the case, can you tell us if the department is working with other agencies on this issue, in particular protecting U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents? And, and what sort of outreach is anyone doing to these communities who feel like the long arm of China is reaching them here within the United States?
3: Uh, yes, we are. Uh, we're working closely with the FBI to make sure that any information that comes our way uh, um, goes to them, and we'd be very happy if you hear of anything uh, in additional to, to also work with you to pass that along. Um, and in terms of making sure that the, the message gets out, uh, we, whenever we meet with the communities, we do everything we can. We also ensure that uh, uh, we're constantly updating our um, uh, travel guidance to make sure that people are aware of the, the situation.
5: Well, again, my last question, is in this particular case, these are people inside the United States, so they're not, they're not, but I agree with the travel part. Finally, in your written testimony, you indicated that the Department of State had conducted outreach to US and Chinese companies with businesses in Xinjiang to draw attention to the risk of their exposure to these abuses. There's a company, Thermo Fisher Scientific, which has sold DNA sequencers to the police there. This is against the backdrop of these grave human rights violations, including, by the way, uh, mandatory data banking of the entire population. I had testimony last week at the uh, commission that we Bipartisan Biocameral Commission on China, that they are forcing people to turn over blood and to get a passport or just compelling it. Thermo Fisher Scientific, an American company, is selling them DNA sequencers. That's what it's used for. Can you tell us whether that is one of the companies that the Department of State has reached out to and expressed concerns about how their technology could be used by the Chinese to do these horrifying things.
3: Um, I can't speak to that particular company, but I can tell you that's the kind of company that we are definitely speaking with. Thank
6: you, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses for your service and your testimony. Um, Senators Gardner, Markey, Rubio, Danes, Warner, and I wrote a letter to Secretary Pompeo about the um, Radio Free Asia journalists' families on the 26th of July. To my knowledge, we have not received a reply to this letter. It was a letter to ask Secretary Pompeo to brief us on the status of the cases and what's being done to try to um, help the family members uh, who are detained. Four of the six journalists uh, are residents of Virginia. Um, I'd like to introduce the letter into the record, uh, with, uh, hopefully without objection, Do do you know, uh, Secretary Pompeo's busy, you know, we're, we're not expecting him to drop everything and do a response, but somebody needs to respond to this letter, it's more than four months old. I hope you, and it may not be within any of your purviews to do that response, but I hope you would take back to the committee that when we write a letter like this, we're not just doing it for our health. I mean, take back to the State Department, we'd like an answer. Do you know, for example, whether, has Secretary Pompeo raised the issue of the uh, imprisoned journalist families directly with his counterpart. Are you aware of whether he has or hasn't?
3: Sir, on that specific issue, he, he obviously has raised Xinjiang, as you could see in the diplomatic and security dialogue press conference with the Chinese standing right next to him. Um, whether he's raised that particular, um, case, could I take that and get back to you?
6: Please. I'd like, I'd like to also know whether Ambassador Branstad has directly uh, raised the issue of these journalist families with his counterpart. And I'd like to know an answer to whether President Trump has directly raised this issue in dialogue uh, with the Chinese. And again, we would appreciate a response to this letter, which is now more than four months old. And I, and I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about this issue and these journalist families. Uh, just last week, um, the Secretary of State wrote an editorial in the Wall Street Journal with respect to another journalist, Virginia resident, Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered by the Saudis, and this is a quote from his editorial, quote, the October murder of Saudi national Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey has heightened the Capitol Hill caterwauling and media pylon. You know, we're not raising this issue about journalists who are being targeted and their families being targeted just to score political points. It isn't about caterwauling and media pylon, it's about We put it in the First Amendment for a reason here in this country. We put it in the First Amendment for a reason. And when people living in Virginia, my home state, living in this country lawfully are being murdered or their families being targeted, and we're silent or not taking ample steps, it raises questions about whether we are being faithful value that we proclaim. I will give Secretary Pompeo credit. The first paragraph of that editorial suggests that our raising the question of Khashoggi is caterwauling. In the 11th paragraph, he says, well, of course, the murder of a journalist is against American values. But I don't like being accused as a member of this body when I raise a question about the murder of a journalist who lawfully lives in my state of being engaged in caterwauling or media pylon. And I don't think my colleagues appreciate it either. Let me switch for a minute and ask this. Do you have a good estimate of the number of Uyghurs that are currently being detained in detention camps in China?
2: Um, Thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, In my uh, statement, um, what I said, and this uh, is derived from what our intelligence bureau has estimated, that there are um, at least 800,000 and possibly up to a couple of million um, uh, folks in these detention uh, yeah. facilities. It's hard for us to get precise right. data because we don't have acts, full access to to that region. But that's our current. That's
6: thing. staggering. And I and I've seen, you know, public reports or press reports that it's a million. But I and I think you're right. It's hard to get a fix on the exact number. But that's a staggering number. Press reports also indicate that a million Han Chinese have been recruited to essentially forcibly occupy the homes of Uyghurs, so those who are not in detention camps are having Han Chinese placed in their homes so that people will be studied to make sure there isn't a Koran visible, they're not praying during the day. You know, we have a constitutional provision, the Third Amendment, that's one of the least used of all, which prohibits the quartering of government troops in people's homes, and it's it's never really been used because no government is stupid enough to try to do it, but the notion of a million Han Chinese being deployed into Uyghur homes. And you've also indicated other things, uh, uh, guarding checkpoints into Uyghur neighborhoods. I mean, this is very significant. Last thing I'd like to ask if you would, and and I'm over, Mr. Chair, but the the situation of Falun Gong um, is also an interesting one. What exactly is the Chinese government's rationale for imprisoning Falun Gong members? Is it just a general suspicion of any kind of concerted or coordinated aided activity, or is there there a Chinese governmental belief that Falun Gong ideology is somehow uh, uh, counter the state? Explain that to me, please.
2: Thanks for the uh, question, Senator. I think your analysis is right. The mere fact that there is a group of people meeting independently with views that are independent of the Communist Party is viewed as a threat by the Communist Party, and I think that's the primary source of their suspicion of the following. So there's
6: no allegation that Falun Gong are participating in terrorist activities or things like that as far as you know.
2: Not not to my knowledge.
6: All right, thank you very much. Appreciate your testimony.
0: Thank you Senator Kane and uh, I want to go back to one of the comments that I made uh, during my first round of questions. I talked about uh, inspectors, uh, UN observation, uh, ambassador, ambassadorial visits uh, uh, to the region. Uh, Mr. Busby, in your – Secretary Busby, in your opening uh, statement, you talked about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Has an official UN uh, envoy, inspectors, visited the region?
2: Not to my knowledge recently, a Senator. Um, there are people called special rapporteurs who are mandated by the Human Rights Council to look into issues like freedom of expression, freedom of association and assembly, uh, freedom from torture. Uh, My understanding is that virtually all of them have asked for access to China in recent years, but none of them have been granted such access. So to my knowledge, no UN official charged with looking into human rights issues has been allowed access to China.
0: Has the United Nations, has the US presence at the UN pushed for uh, such access with China and uh, tried to, or attempted to build a coalition uh, encouraging China to accept such we speakers. have.
2: We have regularly raised uh, that issue with the Chinese government, urging them to receive such special... Has app- our
0: ambassador asked to visit the region?
2: I don't know the answer. Uh,
3: we haven't asked recently. Um, it's on a list of places that we, we do want to visit. The United States uh, diplomats do um, occasionally visit Xinjiang. It's, it's not a closed area. Um, our concern is that uh, we need an independent body like a, a, from the United Nations to be able to go in and do a proper investigation.
0: And, and we will incur- – I, w- I would encourage the ambassador to visit, to request such a visit. I would encourage us to do everything we can at the United Nations to uh, the rapporteurs re- or, or whoever it is, uh, responsible inspections, to get in there immediately. Uh, this is not acceptable. I mean, again, this is somebody that we are doing billions upon billions of dollars of trade with each and every day. And some of the most heinous uh, human rights violations are occurring right before our very eyes.
2: No, Mr. Chairman, that's a very good point. Unfortunately, such access obviously depends on the assent of the Chinese government. And so far, we have not been able L- to. Let me, let me
0: ask you this. In the trade discussions that have taken place, the tariffs that have been levied, uh, has human rights ever been associated with those tariffs and the trade conversations? I am
3: actually haven't been in the, the trade meetings and uh, in the... Discussions that I have been in, um, they've been at a technical level, um, but I do want to reassure you that whenever we are doing preparations for for any visit, um, I always raise these issues. Uh, I feel very strongly about it, and I also feel that the the U.S. government has a a real role in making sure that China knows that to the extent that they want to play a greater role in the world, um, that this is just essential, that these are the kinds of international norms that they have to abide by.
0: Uh, and uh, perhaps uh, follow-up with this question, too, on China and North Korea. Is, is China still receiving uh, labors from North Korea?
3: I'm sorry, sir. I'd have to get back to you with the exact information, the latest on that.
0: Um, and, and I guess one of the concerns that I've had over the past several years, uh, China's willingness to, to accept labors uh, and uh, basically violations by North Korea of human rights Are you familiar with any of the actions China has taken regarding the laborers?
3: I'm familiar with the fact that that in the past, uh, China has uh, certainly accepted a a large number of laborers from North Korea. Uh, Because the North Korean laborers do not have the ability to keep their own salaries and uh, have uh, any kind of freedom, we we do consider them um, to be slave laborers. And uh, one of the things that we, um, we worked with our like-minded partners in the, the UN Security Council resolutions was to ensure that the um, laborers uh, and new laborers going in to, um, to countries has to, has to be tapered off. But in terms of where the exact situation is at the moment, I'm afraid that I would have to get back to you.
0: Thank you. Uh, Administrator Steele, when it comes to uh, Tibet, uh, conversations regarding uh, Dalai Lama and the Catholic Church's decision to agree with the Chinese government about uh, positions within the Catholic Church in China, how does that affect uh, the Dalai Lama and uh, future actions taken in Tibet?
4: Um, We have have been working in Tibet for over 20 years and helping them with livelihood development and uh, environmental conservation. We have stayed around the same areas that they have indicated is of interest to them and uh, we believe we'll continue to stay.
0: And that's probably serious. not the best question for you, but perhaps if uh, Ms. Stone, if you'd like to comment about that question as well.
3: Um, so, in terms of uh, the um, the recent agreement yes. with the um, the church, the, the Catholic Church and the Chinese, um, obviously it's something that we're watching very closely. Uh, the, um, the the U.S. government has not taken a position on the actual agreement. But we are very aware of the fact that, uh, you know, the Chinese government in the past has taken a very uh, aggressive and oppressive role towards religion, and so we do want to track this very closely.
0: Thank you. Senator Markey. Uh,
1: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. I'd like to turn to uh, the United Nations, the Security Council, China blocking condemnation of the Burmese government over their treatment of the Rohingya uh, in Um, in Burma and uh, in Bangladesh. So what is the strategy which the United States has to put pressure on China using our other allies in order to uh, ensure that there is maximum pressure which is imposed upon the Chinese government so that they don't continue to block official statements about global condemnation about to the Burmese policy.
2: Thank you for the question, Senator. Well, as you have seen, Ambassador Haley in New York has raised Burma on multiple occasions in the context of the Security Council. Uh, indeed, when uh, our report on abuses in Rakhine State uh, was first uh, finalized, she was the one who uh, raised the conclusions in that report uh, in the Security Council. So. Uh, We continue to raise uh, our concerns about what has happened uh, in the Security Council. We continue to discuss with our allies uh, how to raise uh, uh, the situation of Rakhine State and Burma uh, in the U.N. generally. But obviously, so long as China has a veto, you know, it's very difficult to overcome that uh, uh, in any way. Um, I I believe there have been discussions with the Chinese about this. China has an interest instability in the region, but so far they have not indicated a willingness for a concrete Security Council action when it comes to Burma.
1: Did uh, President Trump raise these human rights issues with President Xi in his discussions at the G20? What was that conversation, if any, that took place between President Trump and President Xi on the issue of human rights in Burma, in other countries around the world where Um, China is actually helping governments to engage in repressive behavior.
3: So unfortunately I wasn't, uh, well maybe not unfortunately, I was not in the room. Um, And so I do not know uh, the discussion that went on actually uh, during the meeting between President Trump and President Xi. But I can assure you that on the margins uh, we certainly raised these issues. Uh, And we certainly raised the exit bans as well. Um, We acknowledge that you know, the State Department's most important role is the protection of American citizens, and so we we certainly raise that as well.
1: You know, I appreciate that, but I think you used the right phrase, on the margins, okay? And there's no guarantee, no evidence that the President raised the issue himself, because that's the only level, ultimately, at which it works, especially if President Trump is meeting with President Xi. Uh, That's the point at which American values are restated very strongly, uh, and that uh, he understands, that is she understands, that the United States is willing to pay a price uh, for our maintenance of our leadership of human rights uh, issues around the planet. So that clearly has not uh, taken place. Um, now with with regard uh, to um, the issue in Tibet that um, uh, Chairman Gardner raised uh, and Uh, uh, and uh, what we are saying to the uh, Chinese government about the Dalai Lama, about the protection of religious liberty in Tibet? Could you give us, uh, again, a a summary of what our statement of policy is that we are uh, sending to the Chinese government?
3: Thank you very much for that important question. The United States is deeply concerned about the lack of uh, meaningful autonomy for the Chinese people. Um, We've certainly pressed for the release of detained activists uh, throughout the entire country, but uh, very importantly, on the Tibetan Plateau and in uh, historical Tibet. Uh, And we've been pushing for for reciprocity of access. Uh, I know that that's an important issue. Uh, We do want to work with Congress on that shared goal and um, we do continue to have uh, very serious concerns about the ability of the Tibetan people to continue to um, have the ability to express their, their unique culture, their unique language, and their religious practices.
1: Yeah, so it's pretty clear that there's a systematic effort by the Chinese government, not just internally inside of China, but around the world. Uh, to uh, back those policies which are most repressive, uh, which allow for a compromise of human rights. It can be Facebook, it can be Google, but it can be uh, the Uyghurs, it can be the Rohingya, it can be uh, other countries, Venezuela. Any place they're putting their uh, footprint uh, is a place where they're willing to turn a blind eye, use economic uh, power, the repression by a government of those human rights, the natural aspirations of human beings to uh, express their views, to be able to be who they were born to be. So we have high expectations for, for you, um, but we have higher expectations for Donald Trump as well uh, to express those views clearly, concisely, powerfully, insistently, persistently. Um, uh, with the um, Chinese leadership, we haven't seen evidence of that thus far. Uh, but uh, we thank you for your service. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
2: Senator Kane.
6: Briefly, uh, Mr. Busby and Ms. Stone, will you, en- will you endeavor to get us a response to the letter that we sent the Secretary in July?
2: Senator, I'm sorry there hasn't been a response. I've, I, I don't believe I've seen the letter, but we'll take it back and we'll get your response.
6: That, that would be appreciated. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Senator Kane. I want to follow up a little bit on the, the questions on Tibet. I asked the question regarding uh, Catholic Church policy, uh, the, the agreement they reached with China and Dalai Lama, China has said that they will will uh, pick the next Dalai Lama. Um, the, the Tibetan Policy Act of 2002 mandated that American officials should visit Tibet on a regular basis. I want to get into both of these. Uh, if China proceeds and tries to impose uh, a Dalai Lama, what will the U.S. response be? Um,
3: thank you very much, and I think that's a imp- very important question because uh, the I think it's an important – The the fact that you're asking that question is an important signal in itself to the Chinese government that this is the kind of issue that we are watching very closely and at very senior levels. Um, The United States has a very clear position that uh, decisions, religious decisions, should be made within religious organizations, um, that this isn't the role of the state. Uh, I wouldn't want to prejudge exactly how this, um, how, how a future uh, scenario would roll out, but I, I would like to lay a marker that that is the, the clear position of the United States government, and I think uh, widely supported within American society, that those are the kinds of decisions that should be made by uh, religious communities on their own and without outside. Yeah,
0: thank purpose. you. I think mean, it's clear that uh, this Congress would not recognize a, a Chinese imposition. Um, uh, The 2002 Tibetan Policy Act uh, mandated that American officials should visit Tibet on a regular basis. Uh, We know that very few diplomats uh, officials have been been able to visit Tibet to date, uh, primarily because uh, issues of the Chinese government refusing to uh, to, to grant access. Um, Could you describe, perhaps, the level of access to Tibet that your agency has received over the last three years, uh, if anybody else wants to answer this on the panel as well?
3: I'm sorry, sir. Uh, I don't have at my fingertips the, the exact uh, number of visitors. Um, so I would ask that, that we be allowed to to get back to you on that. Um, but I do want to state very clearly that um, I do understand that Senate is considering the Reciprocal Access to the Bed Act. Um, we do want to work very continue to work very closely with Congress and with your staff. Uh, to – with the goal of seeing that Americans do have access to Tibet. Well,
0: thank you. I think it's important that we know what exact access we have had to Tibet from our uh, diplomatic corps. Um, I know uh, Chinese officials who purport to re- represent Tibet have been freely coming to the United States. Uh, I don't know if you know that number, but I'd like to know those numbers. You mentioned the legislation itself. Uh, I think uh, we need to consider reciprocal access as part of our uh, policy and approach to Tibet-China. Uh, Tibet and China, and what is uh, w- what's being done to uh, address this and to promote uh, our access to Tibet? Um, and do you do you share the goals of our Reciprocal uh, Act?
3: We certainly share the goals, and uh, we do look forward to working with you to to figure out how best to achieve those goals. And
0: if passed,
1: uh, you would work to implement it. Of course. Thank you, Mark. Senator Mark. Senator yep. Marky, uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. I just have one uh, final question, and that's on uh, The Human Rights uh, Council, um, we're trying to push China on their human rights abuses. uh, And the Human Rights Council is uh, one aspect of our ability to coordinate with allies to put pressure on those who are violating human rights. Uh, We are now pulling out of the Human Rights Council. How does that hurt our ability then to rally other nations uh, to put together a plan that targets uh, China uh, and do so in a comprehensive way, using that Human Rights Council as a mechanism to accomplish that goal. Mr. Busby.
2: Thank you for the question, uh, Senator. Um, Well, as you know from Secretary Pompeo's and Ambassador Haley's statement at the time of the decision to withdraw from the council, our concerns were the, uh, had to do with the membership on the council, uh, which I should point out included China. China has been uh, a member of the council for uh, a lot of the council's years, um, uh, as well as the process by which members are elected to the council. And our second concern was the fact that the council uh, pays disproportionate attention to Israel. And after years of trying to fix both of those problems, We were not succeeding, and that's what prompted the decision to withdraw. However, the fact that we've withdrawn from the Council does not mean we are withdrawing from advocacy around human rights in China. Indeed, in New York, on multiple occasions at the UN there, uh, we have raised our concerns about China. We have raised it in uh, multiple statements publicly. In the case that Senator Rubio raised, uh, in which China sought to preclude a Uyghur representative from joining a meeting. Uh, our mission there um, actually pushed back uh, and succeeded in getting that person um, access to the UN in New York. Uh, so we continue to uh, look at uh, any and all venues in which we can push back uh, on uh, China's own situation and China's own efforts to influence the UN.
1: Well, I don't think any and all is, ab- is uh, accurate. I, I don't think we have any evidence the president is using his leverage with President Xi uh, to uh, communicate uh, our values at the highest level. So it's in that short list of considerations for the Chinese government as they're trying to decide what their relationship with our country is. Uh, And I disagree. I think that being in the Human Rights Council does help because it's the organizing principle and we might not be happy with all aspects of it, but on this China issue, uh, I think it 's an additional point of significant pressure, which we should be using uh, uh, as an organizing uh, principle to uh, send a very strong message on human rights. I think down the down the line, there are many tools that just are not being used from the Oval Office uh, right down to the Human Rights Council as well uh, and there 's evidence that as a result we 're not really seeing any response from the Chinese on these issues, so I just think that uh, that uh, a change in direction is absolutely necessary. So thank you, Mr. Chairman, thank you for your incredible leadership on this uh, committee, uh, and we thank the witnesses as well for your – and thank you.
0: And, uh, Secretary Busby, you talked about some of the democracy – some of the dollars used uh, toward democracy training. Uh, I would point out how important that uh, those efforts are – civil society uh, teaching about democracy, teaching young leaders uh, uh, about uh, values of human rights. Uh, And uh, the bill that Senator Markey and I have introduced, Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, would greatly increase dollars. Uh, for democracy, human rights, uh, rule of law programming, uh, training, uh, and uh, hope that uh, you will work with us on implementation of those dollars uh, to provide a better, stronger voice for that. Uh, Administrator Steele, I don't know if there's anything you'd like to add to that. It looks like you do.
4: Yes, I did. I, um, it is a major component of the administration's Indo-Pacific strategy: the strengthening of democratic institutions, which was part of my uh, my testimony here. We all realize that there is a need to counterbalance in the uh, in the for, in the development assistance uh, manner, um, and and that's how we will be able to play a role in counterbalancing the effect that China has in weakening countries uh, through its own very uh, adversarial methods. So it is. I just wanted to confirm and um, verify that it is going to be a very important component of uh, the administration's Indo-Pacific strategy.
0: Very good, thank you for that. Uh, thank you again to all of you for your time and testimony today, providing uh, us with your testimony. For the information of members, record will remain open until the close of Business Thursday. Uh, and for members to submit questions for the record, I would ask that you, witnesses uh, the witnesses, respond as promptly as possible. Your response, your responses will be made a part of the record. With the thanks of this committee, hearing is now adjourned.